can be seated. Let us pray together before we open God's Word. Jesus, we're so thankful uh, that we are in your presence and we do sing like never before. God, just by knowing uh, about your grace and your mercy and your love for us, that we can't help but respond by singing songs of praise and worshiping you, that we would be a family together this morning, that that would be the beat of our heart. The motivation of our heart is to worship you, Jesus, because you've allowed us, you've invited us into this relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, illuminate our minds and our hearts as we read your word today, God, that you would give us new insights, new truths, that you would comfort us through the power of the Holy Spirit guiding us through this text, all for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for you baseball fans out there, it's my favorite time of year. It's always baseball season, growing up playing baseball. Um, and some of you guys may know Major League Baseball has some superstitions in them. Uh, one of those, uh, most famous one, is that there's sometimes ball clubs think that they're cursed. And so one of the most famous curses of all times was the curse of the Bambino. Some of you may know who that is. Uh, the curse of the Bambino is when the Boston Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. In 1918, all right, and that curse would go on for 86 years, where the fans would believe that they have been cursed. They sold this great ball player to another club, and now they will never win another championship. And so since 1918, all the way up to 2004, they never won a championship. And the fans had gotten to that point um, and, and their understanding and their ability to be a fan is that, hey, it is what it is. We're cursed. We'll never win another championship. And that was their mentality as they went to ball games and they would sell out ballparks is that it is what it is. It will never change. Today, we're going to look at a text in 20 verses in Acts 9, the last 20 verses from verse 23 to 43 where we're going to see situations where the community, a first century community, is looking at situations and going, it is what it is. It's not going to change. And let me say this up front. That's not always a bad mentality. Sometimes it is what it is. But the reality is that sometimes our focus gets placed on the situation and not on the hope of Jesus in the situation. And that's where we're going to see today where... Um, Luke is writing and, and drawing us to be reminded that every situation, there's hope of Jesus still there. So the first instance is one where we see a bunch of Christians that are in Jerusalem. And they've heard about the conversion of Saul. The once murderous, uh, vindictive soldier that would, that would give the head nod to have Christians persecuted and arrested and killed has now... His heart's been captured by Jesus. And so we're looking about three years after his conversion. And Paul shows up on the scene in Jerusalem with a bunch of other disciples. So let's jump in the text in verse 23. This is Acts 9, verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. 
They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So the first little phrase there says, when many days had lapsed, we look at that and we're thinking just a couple of days. Well, this is actually about a thousand days have lapsed. We learned that in Galatians 1 where he's telling his timestamp of conversion. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, the timestamp of when he was actually retelling the story of being lowered out of the, the window. Uh, and it was when uh, it was under King Artis, which was, he ruled between 37 and 39, which would have been about three years after his conversion. So Saul has been camping out in Arabia and Damascus for about three years. We know that he is making disciples. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus. We know that because it says that his disciples, Paul's disciples, lowered him out of the, the window. Well, how do we know that Paul was preaching the right gospel? Well, it says that in Galatians 1, it says that, For I did not receive it, the gospel, from man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the gospel that Jesus was teaching was the true gospel. And the disciple that, that Saul was teaching was the true gospel. And the disciples of Saul were disciples of Jesus. All right? And so we see that case being built here. And then we see Saul being lowered out of the window to, to be rescued or saved from the, the schemes to kill him. And he goes back to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was where we last saw Saul, giving the head nod to let... Stephen, be stoned. Those disciples that were there would have been very aware of who this man was. And so when he shows up on the scene, they're sitting there going, you used to kill people like me. And so they thought it was a trick. They thought that, that Saul was just trying to get them close so that, so, that they could, so that he could capture them and have them arrested or have them stoned. The cool part about this, and I know it's hard because Saul, this is three years after his conversion, is that he's still paying the consequences of his past. It's still there. Three years of serving the Lord in a different area, and now he comes to Jerusalem where all these people are still, still very real to them. The memories are still very real. And so he's still having to pay for those consequences. But Saul stands fast. He holds to the truth that Jesus did this in me. And so I know that Jesus is going to be the one that's going to continue to rescue me out of this situation. He's the one that's going to heal not just my heart, but heal the hearts of the people that I've hurt in the past. And so he stands in the present, looking at the crowds, looking at the face. He could have ran in shame or hid in guilt, but he stood fast and he waited. And then we see Barnabas step up to the plate and he says that, verse 27, Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles. And described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul could have ran, but he had a friend, a friend that was there that, that recognized what Saul, what has happened, what the transformation was like in Saul's life. Saul can now empathize with these disciples. That's why he didn't run. He's like, I understand. I get it. I know what it's like now to be hunted, because once I was the hunter, but now I'm being hunted. I know what it's like to be found in a, in a, a sticky situation where people are, are mad about what you're doing, 
I know what it's like for the leaders, the top tier people in the community, in the society, to want you to be gone, to want you to be dead. I understand that now. And so then Barnabas comes, and as Barnabas was, he was an encourager, said, hey, he's the real deal. He's one of us. We all need a Barnabas in our life, right? Because the reality, we all weren't always Christians. We all have a past. And so we need someone to say, yeah, I've seen this transformation in this man or this woman or this child. That's what this body is for, this church community, is that we would encourage one another to say, yes, I've walked with this person and I can speak for them. Yeah, they do love Jesus and they're serving. Yeah, they have a past. But don't you as well? And so we see that Saul is continuing to preach the gospel. And what Barnabas allowed was that he created that, that vacuum for, for Saul to continue to go and preach about Jesus. And so he does. And so in verse 28, we see that now he's moving freely throughout Jerusalem. Imagine if Barnabas would not have spoken up to him for him. Well, there would have been immediate division between those that were believers and those that were walking with Saul and being taught by Saul. There would be a division. I don't think that division was the, the, the need at this time in the church growth. So we see this unity happening. They're freely walking in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and went and sent him away to Tarsus. So Saul's back now in Jerusalem. He's walking through the one place that he had the most impact as a persecutor. And people remember him. And even the Hellenistic Jews, the ones that he used to give the orders to, yes, stone that man. The one that Saul would say, yes, go and do this. Now he's arguing with those Hellenistic Jews, which means that they spoke, they were Jews that spoke Greek. And so Saul is now having a debate, and he's winning these debates. We learned about that earlier, that he's overpowering every argument with the power of the Holy Spirit, that he's speaking truth to all these Hellenistic Jews. And more Jews were becoming followers of Jesus. And then the disciples catch wind. Hey, these Jews are trying to kill him again. We need to get him out of here. So they take him, they pull him out of ministry, and they send him down to Tarsus. So a lot of scholars would say that Tarsus was a place that was, that was a safe community for Saul. That's where he was raised. So there's a community of people there that were going to care for him and encourage him and protect him. We don't see Saul pop back up on the scene until Acts 11, which, if the timestamps are right, it's about 8 to 11 years later. Saul stays in his hometown, and he's being trained, he's being prepared, he's being equipped to continue to be ministry. And, and that transition from Saul happens in, I think, Acts 12, where Luke says, and he's also known as Paul. And he begins this ministry as the Apostle Paul. So for 8 to, 12, eight to 11 years, he stays in Tarsus and continues to do the work. He's continuing to preach about Jesus to the point that he needs to get out of there. And so Barnabas and, and, and Acts 12 will call him to come back and serve in Jerusalem again. And then we see in verse 31, something happens to the church during this period. So the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. 
we look at a guy like Saul. We all probably have someone in mind that you're like, ah, I've been, this guy is just is a, is a Christian hater. And we go, man, this guy can't, he'll never be changed. He's not going to change. We just kind of write him off. As, it is what it is. And it's not going to change. But we see Jesus come into the scene and rescue Saul on the road to Damascus. And he changes everything, doesn't he? He changes everything in Saul's life. And then for years to come, he's going to continue to, to change the way that people see Saul. He's going to continue to, to change the way that, that they look at what Jesus is capable of doing. Jesus changes everything. And we see how it impacts the church. It says that there was peace there. There was a godly, sovereign fear of God. We see that the Holy Spirit was the comforter of, of the church. We see that there's continued growth. All key elements for church growth and church planting. We don't even know it, what, what's happening in Galilee. And, and the whole book of Acts, we don't hear them talking about planting churches in Galilee except for right here. It says, well, that it's gone into Samaria, to Jerusalem, to Galilee. And that's just the iceberg. It's just the beginning of the church and the impact. It's, it's outpunted its coverage of just being in Jerusalem. And now it's growing like wildfire. People are being sent out. People we don't even know about in Acts. They're going into Galilee and planting churches. And then there's this incredible uh, cloud of peace that comes and it stays with the church. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not persecution. Persecution doesn't stop. It means that the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit brings peace in the middle of persecution. We're going to read on that the church is going to continue to be persecuted. But we also recognize that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is there with that church as they move forward. That we too would desire that same thing. That the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus comes in and Jesus changes everything. The way that we see persecution is something that we can rejoice in and have peace in and find comfort in. Only Jesus, only the power of the Holy Spirit could allow our minds and our hearts to be able to come to a point of that's joyful. And there's peace in that. Jesus changes everything. And then we go from the end of uh, verse 31 there, and we jump into verse 32. And so Saul's now moving, heading to Tarsus, and we're going to see him jump back in the scene in a couple of chapters, but 8 to, to 11 years later. But it jumps to Peter in Antioch doing some healing. And so the last part of, the last pericope of this, 30 to 32 for 43, is it shifts to Peter, but we see the second instance here. It says that now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. In the book of Acts, we see 14 miracles where someone is being healed. In all 14 of those miracles, the outcome is exactly the same. People are turning and they're worshiping God. Each one of those moments where we see a miracle happen, it's because it's being used. God is using those miracles to build His church, 
to draw people near and capture their hearts and say, I am the one that will, that's here to heal you, to rescue you, to save you. And so we see these 14 miracles and we see that Jesus is the one that empowered the disciples in Luke 9, that he sends them out to go out and cast out demons and heal the sick. So this is the power of Jesus, not of the apostles. God had planted this power, this, this ability inside of the disciples. And then we see Peter imitating Jesus in this very moment. He uses almost the exact same words that uh, Jesus uses in Mark 2 when he heals the paralytic. He says, Jesus says, I heal you. Take up your mat and walk. Peter says, Jesus heals you. Make your bed and walk. And immediately it happens. This is not a power. This is, Peter is not wanting attention here. He's wanting to put all the attention on Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one that is able to heal you. I want you to think about Aeneas for a second. It says that he's been paralyzed for the last eight years. He also says that he's a man, which means that he knows what it's like to walk, to run, to dance, to be able to bathe himself, to be able to feed himself, to be able to walk down to the the market and carry groceries back home. And for the last eight years, he hasn't been able to do that. He's been paralyzed. He's had to rely on the community around him to do all of those things, to bathe him to feed him, to shop for him. It's got to be pretty incredible for this man that was paralyzed for eight years to now experience those things again. We don't know if Aeneas was a Christian. We don't have enough uh, information to let us know if he was or not. But we know that Peter saw the opportunity to heal a man and to present Jesus to him. And he does it and he responds and he's able to walk again. So Aeneas may have been, he may have been, he may have been praying, God, heal me for eight years. He may have had a people group around him that was praying, God, heal him for eight years. And inside those eight years, you may have seen Aeneas pray a little less. And that community of people around him pray a little less. Because they got to that point of, it is what it is. He's a paralyzed man. It's not going to change. And then Jesus shows up through the power that's in Peter. And Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. Make your bed and go and dance and run and shop for yourself and bathe yourself and rejoice in this thing. And it says that it happens. And then then people came and were started to follow the Lord because of this instance. How beautiful a picture that a community that would say it is what it is. It's not going to change. Then Jesus comes and he changes everything. And then we see in the third instance in verse 36, it says, Now in Joppa, where there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in the Greek is called Dorcas, which uh, this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at the at and it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. 
And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So we see Tabitha, also known, named, known as Dorcas, is a servant of the Lord. She's probably an older lady that younger ladies would come and get wisdom from. We know that, that believers loved her because as soon as they heard Peter was near, believers ran to go get Peter and bring Peter there. We know that, uh, that she was a garment maker. She provided a need for other widows. And she most likely was a widow because of the crowd that was there at the, this, this funeral, if you will. And then we see Peter shows up and says that, they, that he sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. You see there? And Peter stayed, in, uh, stayed days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. So we see Peter walk into this scene. He imitates what he knows in 2 Kings 4 where Elisha does the, almost the exact same thing. He enters into the room and he sends everyone out. And there's quietness. And it's Elisha and this boy. It's Peter and Tabitha. And they begin to pray. Elisha prayed and just waited for God to say what he needed to do. The directions were a little bit different in Second Kings. But here it says that he begins to pray. I love that Peter, he's like, I, I can do this. I just did this thing. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But he sits and he has this silent room with a dead body and he prays and asks God what to do. And the Lord obviously just says, tell her to wake up. And so he looks, turns to the body and it says, arise, Tabitha. And her eyes are opened and she's alive. And he presents her as alive. There's two perspectives here, right? You got Tabitha, which is probably like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I was just with... I was heading, this is a good thing. And then you also have the crowd, the people that were there. And they're saddened, just like you and I would be, and we have been at funerals. Saddened by the loss of a friend, of someone that's been uh, influential in our lives. Someone that's cared for, someone that we've loved. It's okay to be saddened by that. And we kind of say, it is what it is. You can't change death. And then Jesus shows up and he changes the roles. He changes this lady that has died and he rises her. Arise, Tabitha. And she wakes up and her eyes are open. She sees Peter and she's presented alive. We all do this. We all have boundaries, don't we? Every situation that we've ever been in, we have boundaries for the Lord. Whether it's about people yeah, there's no, no, no hope for that guy or that gal. Illness, it is what it is. You can't heal a broken bone. It is what it is. Disease, death. It is what it is. Sometimes we feel that way when we lose a job or we don't get our way. It is what it is. Which isn't a bad mentality, but 
our focus has to continue to be on Jesus. The hope of glory, the hope that Jesus is still working, that he's still sovereign in the midst of whatever situation that God places us in. That our hope is still in God. Let us be a church that lays down those presuppositions. Let us be a church that looks to Jesus in every circumstance, in every unknown variable that comes across our path and say, Jesus, can you heal me? Would you heal me emotionally, physically, spiritually? Would you be the God that would heal me? I want your will to be done. I'm not presuming that you will, but God, if it is your will, would you be a God that heals? And as believers, as men and women of faith, the answer is always yes, I will. It may not be right now in our timetable, but the answer is yes. He's saying look to the future for eternity where you will be with me and you will worship. You will be healed. He promises that. There will be no more sadness, no more tears, no more gnashing of teeth. There will be joy and celebration and worship for all of us that believe. And we can adopt that mentality and take it into every circumstance that we're in. That the hope is, is in Jesus in that moment. It may not be a microwave fix. It may be eight years. It may be an entire bad string of doing bad things. It may be death. But Jesus uses sick people to build his church. Jesus, if when he decides to heal sick people, he uses that to build his church. He uses the death of people to build his church. And if he wants to, he'll raise people from the dead to build his church. He has, and he could do it again. But our hope would be in his will, his desire, his plans, not our own. Hope does not end in illness. Hope doesn't end in, in death, in sickness, when we lose a job, when we don't get our way. Hope doesn't end when life ends. It's really where it begins. That our hope is in eternity, where we get to worship a, a beautiful and sovereign God. The crowd here, just like us, we respond. When we see God working, how do you respond? We see the crowds here, the crowd that, that witnessed the healing of Aeneas, the crowd that sees uh, Tabitha risen from the dead. What do they do? They can't help but worship. They can't help but begin to follow Jesus. They can't help but to see God moving and say, I want to be a part of that. And we see believers coming to know Jesus and the church is beginning and continuing to grow. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. In the beginning, talking about the curse of the Bambino. 2004, 86 years later, Boston is in a playoff game for a championship opportunity with the New York Yankees. Boston Red Sox go down three games to none. They're losing. They lost their first three games. And all of the fans were, it is what it is. The curse of the Bambino. What can you do? Red Sox came back. 
First time in Major League Baseball history, over 100 years of baseball history, and they, went, they won four games straight to beat, the Boston, to beat the New York Yankees. First time that's ever happened for a ball club to come back and win four games straight in a pennant championship game or series. The curse was broken. They won a championship. They go on and win the World Series that year. They beat San, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals four games straight. They won eight of their last eight games to win the World Series. The curse was broken by nine men pulling it together and saying, we can do this, guys. We, too, have a curse. A curse that began in the garden. A curse that invited sin and death into this world. And a curse that was not broken by 12 disciples going around healing people and preaching the gospel. A curse that was broken by one man for all of mankind. Jesus Christ came to break the curse of sin and death so that we could look and have our hope in eternity and eternal glory to be with him. He was laid in a tomb for three days. And on the third day he was resurrected to sit at the right hand of God and to invite you and me into this relationship where we could have that hope in him and in him alone. I think God loves to surprise us. I think our, our faith is being tested and will continue to be tested as long as we take in air here. That we may have hope in God and that what God wants to do, when it's, whether it's healing emotionally, physically, spiritually, healing of our body, raising the dead, that's God's business. But our hope would be in Jesus and in Christ alone. Because we've been been invited into this relationship by grace alone, through Jesus. That our faith would be increased. God changes everything. Jesus came to change everything. And next Sunday morning at 9.15, we're all invited to come into this place. Where the elders are going to be here and we're going to be praying for healing. We're going to anoint with Oil, we're going to lay hands on those who desire that. If you feel like the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart to come, then we want you to be here. Not to presume that God's going to heal people left and right, but to, to know with factual understanding that God is God and that He has said, yes, I will heal you, whether it's then or in eternity. But we want to invite you to come and that we be a body that abides in God's Word. We're doing this because God tells us in James 5 to do it and that we may be a a people group that says okay well I'm sick I need to be healed and so I invite you to come and be a part of that next Sunday at 915 Jesus changes everything and he desires to change us he desires to continue to change us for his glory let's pray Jesus, thank you for changing us, transforming us from the inside out. Thank you for planting the seed of the gospel. God, that offers truth, that offers life, that offers healing, offers grace. God, I pray that you would continue to to work on us. So often we are caught in that it is what it is mentality. And we forget to thank God that it is what it is, but you're still our hope. Our hope is in you and you alone, Jesus.
We pray that that would be contagious, not just here in this church, but in Dawsonville, in Georgia, in the southeast, in America, and throughout the world, that every man, woman, and child, that their hope would be in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.